Welcome to the Arrow Buddhism podcast series. The following podcast is an excerpt from a teaching given by Nakchung Rinpoche in San Francisco in 1997. For more information on the Arrow Buddhist tradition, please go to our website at arrowbuddhism.org. We were talking last night a little bit about motivation, and it was occurring to me in the car this morning that there were some things I could say about that in terms of the whole question that revolves around why people do what they do in uh, Britain when it comes to looking at crime and punishment there's what's called the bad or mad debate (laughs) that always goes on that is those who want to call people bad want to punish them and the other ones say they're mad want to look after them in some way and take care of them and um, and it's quite interesting because this you know, forms the core of, of a kind of philosophy. I think one of the interesting things to look at when we approach you know, Buddhism is that our you know, Judeo-Christian constructs uh, can be still quite prominent in a lot of things we do and accept and interpret in terms of <coughs> Buddhism. So I thought I'd like to talk about this idea of, you know, freedom of choice and how that actually exists, you know, whether it exists, how it exists. Because I think this idea of choice is very interesting. Uh, From a Buddhist perspective, we would say that we have choice and we have no choice. It's kind of tricky. There is always a choice there that occurs in terms of exhaustion. When our strategies fail completely, we have a moment when we can reappraise the situation in some way. There's some space there in which something can happen. That's why we engage in silent fitting, so that we can find some kind of space in which neurosis can unravel itself. But this will happen whether we like it or not. It's called life crisis. It's called illness. It's called some unexpected incident. Uh, It's called maybe seeing something beautiful, something ugly, something surprising. So we have these possibilities. We have these moments when choice can actually exist. But most of the time, we have very little choice indeed, because whatever choice I make is built on previous choices I have made. Now, I think it's important to understand that we have these rather remarkable characters like Hitler. No one's mentioned him for a while, but there was a time when Whenever there'd be a discussion of karma and motivation, someone would seize on the idea that, you know, there are people who are essentially bad, evil, you know, that, um, you know, such a person is beyond the pale in some way. Now, this is completely antithetical to a Buddhist view. No one is like this. This is why we have the you know, story of Rudra. Is everyone aware of this story of Rudra? No. 
Rudra means kind of screwed up, or rather massively screwed up. <laughs> Rudra is kind of ignorance, complete ignorance, but forceful ignorance. The story goes, and it's a kind of a folk tale about Rudra. It's all about two students and a teacher. And the students of this teacher are being instructed that everything is essentially perfect, complete in its own nature. So one goes away and becomes a hermit and practices. The other one goes away and becomes a bandit and becomes a great bandit. The two students meet one day and they're talking about the nature of their practice and they become aware that they have slightly different angles on practice. <laughs> this concerns them somewhat, so they decide to go and see the teacher. You can tell it's a folk tale already. <laughs> and the teacher says to the bandit, well, I think you've misunderstood something here. At which the bandit becomes very angry. He kills the teacher and his co-disciple and goes on to be an even greater bandit. Then through his one-pointedness as a bandit, he achieves rebirth in a god realm. Mm -hmm. But he achieves it in such a way that his mother dies as soon as she's given birth to him. What her, uh, his mother did to deserve this, I don't know. That's not part of the story. But he's a really hideous-looking being. Mm -hmm. He's in the god realm, but he's hideous. Mm -hmm. you know, this is interesting in itself. When you look at what power is, the only uh, way you can be really powerful is if you become one-pointed in a, um, a samsaric sense. You've got to be able to be prepared to ice anybody. You cannot have any friends. Mm -hmm. And this makes you intrinsically ugly. So here he is in the God realm, uh, he's, he's this hideous being. The gods throw them out because they're a kind of a disgusting sight. They uh, land in this great uh, charnel ground, this place that's full of corpses and stuff that's rotting. Then the first thing that Rudra does is eats his mother. Then he starts to eat everything else and he starts to get very strong and big and he kills everything he finds on the principle that it exists, therefore I kill it and eat it. Uh, he becomes immensely powerful and he dresses in all the um, things he finds around him. He wears tiger skins, he wears elephant hides, human hides, he wears bones. Uh, he, he looks like something out of a Hammer horror film. This is the ancient Indian version of that. You know. The thing you don't want to meet in a dark alley, this is what he becomes. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, the teacher and the other students, who are Amitabha and Chenrezi, they observe what's going on with Rudra and say, this is really too bad for Rudra what he's doing now. We, we really have to do something about this. And so they decide, right, we we have to teach Rudra a lesson that he won't forget. So Amitabha manifests as a horse and Chenrezi as a pig, and they humiliate Rudra by entering him through his anus. One explodes out of the top of his head as a horse, the other explodes out of his side as a pig, 
and then Rudra says, okay, fair cop, that's it, I'm humiliated, so I now um, dedicate my form as a method of practice to display that however bad you are, you can be transformed. So that's a kind of crude folk story. But what it depicts is that there is no such thing as someone who is completely evil that cannot exist in a Buddhist paradigm. There is only ever confusion. And however distorted the confusion is, it is still a distortion of enlightenment, and hence the wrathful awareness beings. That's why they look like what they look like. They are a powerful method because they play uh, a very, very compact description of negativity. <clears throat> they press all the buttons. So you'll have your Paladin Lamo who sits on the flayed hide of her own son, you know, and, uh, you know, she carries loaded dice because when she plays for the teaching, she always wins, you know, and it's, it's like everything around these beings is really kind of corrupt, nasty, rotten, they carry sacks of diseases, they ride through oceans of blood, there's really a nightmare here, and this nightmare is the nightmare of our neuroses, that they can always be transformed. So if someone had some kind of a vision, you know, today of a wrathful awareness being, he might have this mudra, you know, he might have a little moustache and a bit of the hair that comes down, you know. And we might say, oh, that's a really bad thing there. You know, if that can be transformed, then this is a symbol of enlightenment, then, well, even I can become enlightened then. You know, this is really powerful. So how do we apply this in our own lives in terms of what we do, how, how we approach our own motivation? This is most easily understood if we look at the idea of a shifting experiential norm. Mm -hmm. If you can picture your current motivations, ideas, you know, the parameters of what I can do, what I can't do, what I should do, what I shouldn't do, mm -hmm. the things that make up what you are, cheesy things that I might do and the things that are too cheesy for me to do. You can build a circle out of that and everyone will say, uh, well, yes, he'd do that or she'd do that under those circumstances or that would surprise me if I heard that they'd done that. So we all have an idea of each other in terms of what we're capable of. Now, when it gets towards the borders of what we will and won't do, there's a fuzzy area. And that fuzzy area we're always looking into at some point or another, depending on what is happening to us. Now, we can stray over that area occasionally when we're hard-pressed by something and we'll do something that we might regret. But if we do it enough, it becomes normal. Anything that we do enough becomes normal. As soon as it becomes normal, then we extend what we're capable of doing because our fuzzy area moves further out. 
so we do something else in that fuzzy area in the same direction you can imagine these little points you then get a ruler you connect up these points and you see where they're going like a map I keep walking into this uncharted area it keeps feeling normal and I'm going in a direction you know so you draw a line and at the end of it you get Hitler or you get Charles Manson or you get whoever so someone who uh, acts in a highly negative manner you know we were talking about this yesterday like like what is this person doing it's interesting in terms of understanding the nature of samsara that we always justify whatever we do if we've had to do something that is unpleasant then we will create a world view that supports that with us in it that sometimes i just have to do this because it's necessary for my protection and that wasn't a very good person anyway <laughs> they had it coming <clears throat> if it wouldn't have been me it would have been somebody else and as this view evolves uh, this view makes me capable of doing other things and I evolve a view around that as well some kind of a world order because the one thing that samsara is is very very intelligent intelligent in the sense of being able to conjure with facts and make them fit anything mm-hmm. you know it's really extraordinary if one is you know discussing any, anything with a person who has uh, a very corrupt intelligence is that they can make anything out of anything anything can be justified I mean, th- you know, this isn't particularly esoteric. You can just look at politics for that. You just <laughs> listen to what these people are saying. And, um, you know, I, I was staying with my uh, mother a while back, and there were some party political things on the television, and um, they all sounded really reasonable. You know? <laughs> I thought, yeah, sure. <laughs> So, you know, it's not just politicians who do that, because we all exist as politicians within ourselves. You know, we create the agendas and and we conform to them. And we say, well, sure, that was a bad thing to do. I mean, how long do you live with the bad thing you've done before you either um, come to terms with it in terms of how I'm going to change myself so I'm not going to do that or how it was perfectly okay to have done that we move in one way or another and it's the process of making it okay that creates greater and greater and greater complexity because whatever I make okay in my actions is not just extraterritory and I can move in that direction but I start evolving the skill of making things okay. I've made one thing okay, I know how to do that. I haven't really even observed myself doing that because it's a process in which I'm involved where I have to feel comfortable with who I am and what I'm doing. So a whole philosophy emerges. 
I may not be aware of the philosophy, but it's building up. It has a logic of its own kind. And then I dwell within that logic. And this is, you know, a definition of the realms. So when we look at the hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, you know, these are all systems of logic in which we can find ourselves. So when we end up as a person who is uh, actually calculatedly vicious, there will be a philosophy here. A system that has made sense of itself in order that I can survive as this person, you know, in terms of feeling okay about myself.